Olivia Lanes is a quantum computing researcher and advocate at IBM. Oh, uh, whoops, I might have amplified that part a bit too much. Hey, and uh, coincidentally, this episode is all about quantum amplifiers. What they are, where they are in a quantum computer, how do they work, and more. Olivia and I got to chat about all of that, and I won't delay any further so that you can listen to this interesting chat we had. Take it away, me from the past. All right, so I have with me today Olivia Lanes, who is a researcher and a quantum computing advocate at IBM. Um, she's interested in quantum amplifiers, and that's mainly what we're going to talk about today. Olivia, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, so before we, we dive into quantum amplifiers and uh, what are they, uh, could you give us a bit of your, your background, how you got into quantum computing, what made you interested in it, that sort of stuff? So, yeah. So it just depends how far back you want to go. So um, I wanted to do physics basically since from the time I was in high school. Um, and I thought I was going to be an astronomer. I really liked Carl Sagan. I was super into Cosmos. Probably hear that all the time. Um, but I was also really into like code breaking for some reason. Um, I was like super into cryptography when I was a kid. I don't really know how that started. It was just like always an interest of mine. Um, so when I went to college, I knew I wanted to be a physics major. I declared my physics major like the first day. I never wavered, but I didn't know what um, type of physics that I was going to study. Hmm. And so I sort of explored around a little bit. Um, and I remembered how much I liked my first quantum mechanics class. And I, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought a little bit. So then I went to graduate school and I decided that I was basically going to try to do quantum information, having had like no experience in it whatsoever, basically. But I knew that I liked code breaking. I heard that quantum cryptography was a thing. I didn't know anything about it. I just heard quantum and I heard cryptography. <laughs> and I was like, I like both of those things. And I had recently gone on an observing trip, which I didn't think was nearly as fun as I thought it would be <laughs> when I signed up to go. And I sort of had a reckoning and I was like, wow, I don't want to be an astronomer, but I still want to be a physicist. What am I going to get? What am I going to do? So I applied to graduate school sort of blindly. I said I was going to do quantum information. Didn't know anything about quantum information, um, but it all worked out. I went to the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I worked with Michael Harridge for my PhD. And for the most part, you know, graduate school is hard, but it was great. I liked quantum information. I loved it, actually. Um, I did my PhD mostly on quantum amplifiers. And yeah, so then I graduated uh, this past summer and I joined IBM shortly after that. That's interesting, like that you you knew you wanted to do physics from that far back, but that it sort of evolved over time. I've talked with other people who have gone from like big astrophysics down to small quantum physics. And yeah, you, you think that it's mainly the sort of the practical implications of what you were doing? Or was there something specific that uh, drove you from uh, big to small? <laughs> It wasn't the practical implications. It was like the day-to-day -day work. So 
I thought that basically astronomy was going to be like looking at pretty pictures and like hanging out in a room with brilliant people discussing, you know, the big questions like where do we come from? What is the universe? But actually, um, it's mostly just computer programming these days. <laughs> and I mean, I don't hate programming, but it was never something that I loved. Um, I like working with my hands. I like doing experiments that I can physically build and see and create. And that's just not what astronomy is. So once I sort of realized that astronomy, research in astronomy, wasn't what I had glamorized it to be, I realized pretty quickly that it wasn't for me. <laughs> and why did I pick quantum? I guess because I had always liked quantum better than I liked any other subject in physics. But I sort of forgot about it for a long period of time because I decided I was going to be an astronomer having no basis on what astronomers did. Wait, so you you mentioned your first quantum course. When when was that? So I actually took a quantum mechanics course my freshman year. It was my first college course ever, but it wasn't called quantum mechanics because oh. that scares people. <laughs> um, the course was called The Strange Nature of Light. And it was taught by who, someone who became my advisor. His name is David Jackson, but not the David Jackson who wrote the horrible uh, E&M book. It's a different David Jackson. Um, but he taught the course basically assuming correctly that none of us knew anything about quantum mechanics. He basically just said, you know, this is what a photon is. This is how we can observe its behavior as a particle and as a wave. And then you sort of just have to have this reckoning that what you think is true about light is not true. And obviously that's because of quantum mechanics. So then you have to sort of um, develop a new understanding, which of course can be a little bit math heavy after that. But the course wasn't called quantum mechanics. <laughs> it was supposed to be like a freshman seminar course for just people who are generally interested in science. But I don't know. I mean, it blew my mind. After that, I was kind of like, yeah, this is definitely the right major for me. Huh. Yeah, that was my next question was going to be, did that like blow your mind when you heard that? Or was it sort of like, okay, yeah, I can, I can deal with that. No, it did blow my mind. I mean, I distinctly remember he put on a video um, of, I think it was single electrons going through the uh, double slit interference and you know, you watch them one by one appear on the other end, like on a, on a blank piece of paper. And it forms this interference pattern, which is totally counterintuitive to what you would think it would be. You know, you block off one slit, you get a pattern, you block off the other slit, you get the same distribution, you put them both together, you know, what the heck. Um, <laughs> so he said that, he showed us this, sorry, basically without any commentary and just like led us to conclude our own interpretations. Um, and that's sort of, yeah, when I naively had my mind blown and I just thought it was the coolest thing. And I like, remember I wanted to like run back and like talk to my roommates about it, but they didn't really <laughs> care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I am, I'm very well familiar with that problem of having something that you're very passionate about and other people don't share that. Um, yeah, but... there's enough people just not maybe necessarily in your freshman year dorm room. <laughs> yes. Yep. Uh, speaking of things that you're passionate about, you did your PhD in quantum amplifiers. Uh, so 
yeah, let's let's dive into that. Uh, I don't I don't know anything about quantum amplifiers. Um, uh, people who listen to the podcast will know that I'm more on the computer science theory side. Um, so and this is more hardware. So I guess my my first question is, what are quantum amplifiers? So I guess in like the simplest definition, a quantum amplifier is an amplifier that can officially uh, amplify a quantum signal. Um, so most people don't even know about their existence, I guess, because if they're doing their job correctly, there's no need to really <laughs> pay attention to them, right? Um, but what it is, is it's a, a chip built off of very similar technology to like a superconducting qubit. So if you're familiar with Josephson junctions, um, those types of nonlinear uh, elements, it's made in the exact same way. Hmm. But you can construct it in such a way that when it's powered by a microwave generator, it can amplify quantum signal without adding any more than the minimum amount of noise allowed by quantum mechanics. So, yeah, it's really cool. Like, I didn't know when I went to graduate school that quantum mechanics had a fundamental limit to noise. I had just never really thought about this before. But the underlying mechanism is the same as, like, the Heisenberg uncertainty relationship. So you can't, you know, precisely measure momentum and position. You can't precisely measure, for instance, the real and the imaginary component of a quantum signal. There's a fundamental noise floor. and the quantum amplifier is quantum because it can approach that floor. It reaches that threshold. Um, and it also works at cryogenic temperatures, which is not true of, you know, most commercial components. You can't just like go to the store and buy an <laughs> amplifier that works at 10 millikelvin. <laughs> yeah. So they're all highly engineered specialized devices um, that exist in the quantum computers that you know IBM has and the smaller ones that I used in graduate school as well. So yeah, that's what a quantum amplifier is. Interesting. And so yeah, it, it, it's interesting to think about this as as you're talking because with the no cloning theorem, like if you have a, a digital amplifier that's taking in like my microphone's signal um, as input bits, it's going to copy those um, and adjust them and then spit them back out. But you, you, I don't know, like there isn't really processing going on in a quantum amplifier, if I'm understanding you right. Yeah, it has to do with a process that's called three-way mixing. <laughs> and it's a little math heavy, but basically the way that I think about it is if you were to look at the Hamiltonian, which is basically you know, what describes the total number of terms, which summed up equal the total amount of energy in the system. Um, if you put in a pump photon, which comes from like a microwave generator, it can be exchanged through this three-wave mixing process and basically amplifies in exchange for this pump photon, the incoming um, signal photon that would come into the amplifier from the qubit, for instance. And then it would leave on the output end much larger in amplitude. Interesting. So it's uh, it's like you're mixing together sort of. I mean, there, there's they're the same ingredient, but almost multiple ingredients to get a, a bigger volume 
of yeah, like, the end and product. it's you know a con- conservation process. So you basically lose the pump photon in this sort of weird mixing bowl of nonlinear cryogenic components, um, and what you get is a bigger amplified signal, which hopefully, if you have built your quantum amplifier correctly, doesn't add a ton of thermal noise to the system. That's why they're necessary. I should have probably stated that earlier. (laughs) They're necessary because a typical amplifier adds too much thermal noise to really distill the quantum signal without averaging a million times. Okay. So, So it would be possible to use a standard amplifier you would just have to, it, it, it wouldn't work very well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are two sets of amplifiers in most cryogenic systems. There's the cryogenic amplifier, and then there's a uh, hemp amplifier, which is at a higher stage of the, the fridge. Like it's higher up. It's at a warmer temperature. It's called a hemp, the high electron mobility transistor. And if you just had that, you can buy these. These are commercial components, actually. Um, If you just had the hemp, you could read out a quantum signal, but you'd have to average a ton. Why is that bad? Well, if you want to perform error correction, if you want to do single shot measurement, which is sort of what a lot of the cool, you know, things that you would want to do with a quantum computer that relies on the ability to do single shot measurement. So... You need something which can distill the quantum signal more purely instead of doing a billion averages. So by putting a quantum amplifier as what we would call a first stage amplifier in the readout chain, you put it before the commercial amplifier, you can perform single shot measurement. Okay, Interesting. And that was actually going to be another one of my questions. Where, where in a quantum computer will you find this amplifier? Yeah, so I mean, it's at the base temperature plate area in the base of the fridge, just like the, the superconducting qubits, and it comes after them. So to read out a qubit, you know, you send in a microwave pulse. You say, hey, qubit, what are you doing? The qubit says, I'm zero, I'm one. And then that <laughs> signal leaves the, the cavity that the transmon is coupled to. And then it goes into the cryogenic amplifier. That gets bigger. And then that bigger signal goes to the hemp, gets even bigger. And then it goes to your room temperature electronics. So it, it lives in the bottom, the coldest area, right after the transmon. Okay. And so then it's there isn't any, any I guess, intermediate steps between the actual transmon qubit itself and this amplifier? Actually, there is. That's okay. Okay. So that's a um, no. It's a really good question because that's one of the biggest problems with engineering the amplifiers. You generally have to put some cryogenic isolators or circulators in between the qubit and the cryogenic amplifier, and these basically just direct the flow of signal away from the qubit. Because what you don't want to happen is you don't want the signal to leave the qubit get amplified and then have any of that signal go back um, (laughs) and sort of screw up the qubit state that you're trying to read out. That would be counterproductive (laughs) to (laughs) the entire point. So you You need a lot of, need a lot of error correction after that. (laughs) You know, you need something. Um, (laughs) So you install these big bulky isolators, um, which you can buy for the most part. These are commercial components as well. 
um, but they're lossy. Every time you install, you know, another section into your readout chain, you're going to lose some photons, some information. So that's one of the biggest problems with these amplifiers is that we haven't figured out a good way to make them not amplify signal in reverse as well. Interesting. And uh, I guess compared to the transpond qubit itself, how big are these amplifiers? Um, does it create a space constraint on the actual the cryogenic plate inside this fridge? I mean, they're bigger than the transmons themselves. Um, if you're working with a 2D qubit as opposed to a 3D qubit, um, might not be that big of a deal. I mean, it does take up room in your fridge. That is true. Uh, I would say that probably, in my opinion, the isolators are what's taking up a bigger chunk of space. Um, but yeah, I mean, they do hog up some of that volume for sure hmm. yeah yeah the reason i ask is because i've heard from some people that one of the the big problems is in not necessarily the qubits themselves because the qubits are small you can pack in a lot of them but the readout architecture so i was wondering if this was a part of that yeah it is it's part of what we would call the readout chain and that's sort of where all of those bulky components are hmm. okay interesting um, slight change of topic here, uh, but does uh, something I was wondering, does this have anything to do with uh, quantum repeaters um, in quantum networks? Uh, I don't know if you need to... I mean, not really. It's sort of its own separate thing. Okay. Um, as far as I know, not too related. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, okay, so I, I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier, um, which was... The transmon, um, you said that it was inside of a cavity and that these amplifiers are themselves, uh, were they another cavity or attached to this, like, I don't know, the side of the cavity? How does, how does that look? Yeah, so I mean, it looks a little bit different depending on if you're working with um, a 2D cavity or a 3D cavity. A 2D cavity just kind of looks like, um, you know, like a, a squiggle, a transmission line. A 3D cavity looks like a box. When the trans mom lives inside it, um, but they the physics is the same. So when I was in graduate school, we used three D transmons, which means you take your little silicon or sapphire chip and you put it in a box, and the box is your physical cavity. So mm -hmm. when you want to read out what the transmon is doing, you have to send in a microwave pulse, which will basically act as a standing wave in that cavity, and that resonance tone will shift depending on, you know, if the qubit is in zero or one, it'll go up or down. Um, but it's that cavity frequency that's what you read out at. So the amplifier doesn't live in a cavity. I mean, there is a box that sort of goes around it, but that's more for magnetic shielding. Um, we don't really care what the resonance frequency of the box is. It's just to, like, keep out, um, yeah, magnetic signals that we don't want to live <laughs> in the, the uh, amplifier. And um, we would connect these amplifiers just with like a cable, like a coax cable, which would go from the cavity basically into this magnetic shielded box. And then the cryogenic amplifier itself 
looks like a ring of Joseph's injunctions. So a typical superconducting qubit transmog, which is like the most basic kind, I'm sure you're familiar with it already, is just a Joseph's injunction um, and a really big capacitor. And the amplifiers that I commonly work with were called JPCs, which are just in parametric converters. And it's basically a ring of these Joseph's injunctions and capacitor paths as well. So like I said, it's the same components. It's just like a different arrangement of them. So the circuit looks different, like it definitely does. Um, but like the individualized components, not so much. Huh. Okay. And you, you mentioned that they're connected with coax cables. Is that just like standard off-the-shelf coax cable? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, for certain parts of the fridge, people like to use superconducting coax cables because, um, you know, it's more efficient, um, less loss. But for hooking up certain components at the bottom of the fridge at base itself. Yeah. You can just go to mini circuits and, you know, buy yourself some coax cables. Interesting. So, okay. Let's say besides the the actual dilution fridge itself, uh, how much of a quantum computer would you say is like off the shelf components that Joe Schmo could go and buy at I don't know, Radio Shack? They're out of business. Well, it depends, I guess what Joe Schmo's budget is. (laughs) So like, it's not affordable for me to go buy <laughs> all of those components myself. Um, but like, let me think. I mean, the superconducting cables you can just buy. You don't need like your own fab facility to make them. The isolators you can buy. Um, what else? The hemp's. Those are the the larger amplifiers you can buy. Um, think that's it that's all i can think of at the moment and of course you can you know like you said buy the fridge itself most people (laughs) don't make their own dilution refrigerators some do but yeah that sounds like a lot of work to me (laughs) yeah yep um i I actually had on um david gunnerson from blue force talking Mm. about dilution refrigerators a while back right well he's gonna know way more about it than me (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, he actually, he does build his own dilution refrigerator. Of course he does. No, yeah, I mean, thankfully, I've always been fortunate, I'm probably going to jinx myself now, to have very reliable dilution refrigerators, so I've never needed to (laughs) fix anything of any real substance in a dilution refrigerator. They pretty much always worked when I needed them to, which I know is not the case for Hmm. most people in the field who have a few more years of experience than I do. They've gotten much more reliable. Okay. Interesting. Uh, um, speaking of reliability, these these quantum amplifiers do they do they ever? I mean, they're obviously cooled way down, um, and I know that like that that cooling and then coming back up to room temperature if you ever need ever need to work on them can be hard on materials. Do they do they break? Do they ever crack? Anything like that? Um. Yeah, they can. It's not super common. Uh, generally what I see happen most frequently is that the frequencies shift over time due to a process that we call aging. Um, basically like oxide builds up on the Joseph's injunctions, which changes their resistance, which changes their frequency. 
Hmm. Um, so if the, what we would say, if the amplifier ages away from like the cavity frequency that we're trying to read out too much, it basically becomes useless to us. Hmm. Um, every once in a while, I've seen a Josephson junction basically die from electrostatic discharge, ESD. Hmm. Um, so this is pretty rare. Like they're pretty <laughs> big. So it's hard to shock them to death. It's really easy to shock a qubit to death. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of harder to shock an amplifier to death, although I've seen it happen, especially in the winter. <laughs> um, that sounds that sounds like there's a story behind that. Is that a story you can share? Oh, I mean, sure. Basically, just, you know, how, like, your hair gets really staticky in the winter and, like, you're, you tend to uh, have drier skin. Um, there's just not as much humidity in the air and, uh, superconducting components don't like that. And if you accidentally have too much ESD, you know, on your little tabletop where you're trying to probe the experiment before you pull it down, we usually like to measure their resistances and stuff, make sure it's within a certain bound that we're looking for, because that would correspond to a frequency that we're looking for. If you're not very careful, if you're not wearing a grounding strap and that type of protection, uh, you can, you know, blow up a junction. <laughs> um, it's not a particular story. It's just something that I've seen happen on occasion. Okay. All right. All right. Fair enough. Um, I, I wanted to go back to what you were talking about with this this aging of these amplifiers. And you said that if that happens um, too much, that they're basically worthless. I guess there's two questions here. One is, can you correct for that at any point in like the software or um, further up the the hardware stack? And then the second part of that question is, is, is there any way to reverse that process? Or is it just like it's happening and once it gets to a point, you got to throw it away? Yeah, I mean, maybe somebody could think of some really creative solution to get rid of the oxide, but certainly we just threw the amplifier away and made a new one. I mean, in my lab in graduate school, that was kind of our bread and butter. So like we had literally like 30 of them lying around. So it's not like it was a big deal to just get a new one, honestly. Mm -hmm. So we never spent a long period of time thinking like, how could we fix this? Um, but to answer your question about the software, no, it can't really be corrected at that level because what you do is you have to make sure that the amplifier is aligned at the same resonance frequency as the cavity that's connected to the qubit or else it doesn't get bigger. So it would never even make it up to the room temperature electronics in the first place. Oh, and God. you have some leeway about what this frequency is. Like if I had a qubit and I was like, this qubit's at five gigahertz, it would be really hard to uh, make an amplifier that was exactly at five gigahertz like you just don't really have that level of precision in fabrication hmm. but it's flux tunable it's frequency tunable so one thing we haven't talked about too much yet is actually there's a very tiny magnet um that you would stick on the back of these amplifiers and these magnets are all handmade too i spun many of them by hand hmm. many of them uh led very painful deaths um <laughs> So you stick this magnet on the back of your amplifier. The magnet is hooked up to a current source and you can adjust the current source. The current will then change the you know, magnetic flux, which flows through the amplifier hmm. and it creates a superconducting loop because like I said, all those junctions are, are in a ring. 
So you have a superconducting loop. And if you change the amount of flux that goes through this loop, you can change the frequency. So say you can tune your amplifier by like 500 megahertz or something. Um, so you can get a range. So as long as the range can align with the cavity frequency, you're good. So it didn't happen too often because usually the range was large enough so that aging would happen and you were like, we're still good. We're still in range. <laughs> um, every once in a while it would age out of that range. And that's sort of when you're like, ah, got to get a new one. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So how, how fast does that aging process happen? Is it over days, weeks, months? Yeah, it's actually, it's a really good question. There's people who I looked into it for a while myself when I was in graduate school. It turns out most of the aging happens within like the first week hmm. of the amplifier existing. Oh, yeah. um, and then it sort of plateaus. So the curve kind of like jumps up really quickly and then plateaus after maybe like seven, eight days. Interesting. Um, and it happens way more quickly at room temperature. So if you keep your amplifier sitting on your desk, I don't recommend it. Um, that's bad. If you keep it under vacuum, it will still age, but not as quickly. And if you keep it cooled down, it doesn't really age. Okay. That, that's interesting. It, it, so is it, is it, I guess, a jump up like straight line over or is it a, it's a curve that you no, can No, it's a curve. Model? It's like a smooth curve. We modeled it. Um, okay. But it's sort of hard to predict. <laughs> fair enough okay um we're sort of uh wrapping up here uh, i've got just a couple more questions for you uh first one is what do you see as the biggest promise in quantum computing right now i'm really optimistic about the ability to simulate molecules um for materials research or drug development i think okay. that that's sort of what is most promising and exciting to me. But one thing I always like to mention, because I sort of feel like nobody else does, is um, <laughs> I like quantum computing, not just for the applications. I like quantum computing because it allows us to probe quantum mechanics and the physics. And you can do that right now. We don't have to wait for any sort of promise on the horizon to do that. But I mean, by delving into the field of quantum information processing we have learned more about how quantum mechanics works than we ever have before so if i'm being 100 percent honest that's what i'm ex most excited about like i want to know <laughs> what quantum mechanics is i want to know <laughs> fundamentally like what is quantum information how can you transfer you know quantum signal what is quantum signal so those are like I don't know, more fundamental questions that I'm interested in as well. Huh. So yeah. I think it's really cool that you're basically using something that's so useful. Um, you know, the promise of it is, is going to be so useful, but you're also at the same time using it to understand more fundamentally how nature works, even if we don't have a firm grasp of it right now. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's great. I was actually just talking about this with uh, Jack Cerrone um, a little bit about comparing uh, the quantum computing, um, I don't know, revolution that we're in right now mm -hmm. to the the space race um, and putting a man on the moon. Um, and that, you know, there there aren't that many applications for putting a man on the moon. Right. Um, but there's a there's big engineering and scientific value of getting up there, getting back. 
I think yeah, it's a cool parallel. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like the guy who climbed Mount Everest too. It's like, why'd you climb Mount Everest? Because it was there. Yeah. <laughs> why did you want to study the fundamental nature of reality? Because it's there. <laughs> it's, it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And so then sort of the flip side of that is what do you see as the biggest problem in quantum computing right now? Well, I mean, I think this is not controversial. I think the biggest problem is we haven't been able to fully implement error correction yet. Um, but we will. I, to I totally believe that we will. But I mean, when that happens, that's going to change the game. So I would say that is our biggest challenge that we are all actively trying to tackle right now. Very cool. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. Where can people find out more about you and what you're working on? Um, so I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, my handle is at live lanes. Um, that's honestly probably the best way to get in touch with me and figure out what I'm doing. I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't really check it that often. Um, and of course, you can connect with me through the Kiskit Slack as well. If you have questions about stuff that I'm doing at IBM, that's totally cool. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Olivia. Yeah, thanks so much, Ethan. This was fun. Okay, so I haven't gotten any questions or corrections from people online sending me via, you know, mines or email or smoke signals, anything like that. But I actually did get some feedback from a guest that I've interviewed, um, although that episode won't come out until much later. Uh, and they gave me some feedback on one of my older episodes, um, actually some of my older episodes. And when I say older, I really mean like much older, all the way back in season one stuff. Um, and the feedback was that I could have done a better job editing the audio because sometimes it would be too quiet. Sometimes it would be too loud, um, which is definitely a valid criticism. Uh, it pains me to go back and listen to those old ones. And I also, I got enough of that criticism that I changed my whole workflow for season two. I started doing it in Audacity so I could do some sound um, normalization. And I've done even more of that in season three. Um, so I've been really trying to fix this. Um, however, if you are listening to this and you still find this a problem, even in season three, um, please reach out to me. Let me know that this is something you'd like to see changed. And um, I will do my best to do it better. Um, or if you want me to go back and remaster those season one episodes, go back and do what I'm doing now to season three, um, let me know. If someone lets me know about that remaster in uh, the next two weeks, we'll say, so you got to be an actual listener of the podcast, um, I'll, I'll do it. And yeah, so you can reach out to me to send me that information or any other questions, corrections, suggestions on email um, at minds.com or an anchor voice message and how you contact me through all of those is in the show notes okay so all of the links to all of olivia's stuff is as per usual arrangement in the show notes so you can go check out her twitter um, go follow her find out more what she's working on and if you would like to support me so i can make more and better episodes please support me on anchor there's a link to that in the show notes as well or you can send me crypto uh, i've got addresses for quantum resistant ledger ethereum and monero in the show notes that would be much appreciated or if you have something else that you would like to um, use to support me i am willing to uh, entertain an email no matter what it is 
Uh, thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.